Section 9 of Solario the Tailor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Laurie Arsenault. Solario the Tailor by William Bowen. Section 9. Certainly not, said I with a shiver. You have made your choice, said the fool. Bufino, give me the mirror. The monkey, who had now returned, handed to the dwarf a large mirror, and the fool held it up before my sister. Instead of the beautiful person of my sister, appeared in the glass the face and figure of an old woman, bent, ugly, and wrinkled. My sister started back in dismay, and the dwarf held up the mirror before myself. It showed me a gross, puffy face with three chins and pig's eyes, horribly repulsive. I shuddered. Just as I thought, said the fool. Tell me now, have you seen the king's brother? Yes, said I. Will you marry him? said he to my sister. Oh, said she, how could I? I can't say. I'm... Just as I thought, said the dwarf and you won't help me cure my people. What is it you came here to seek? We are seeking the best thing in the world, said I. And what is that? I don't know, but we'll certainly recognize it when we find it. Not you, said the dwarf. Not until my mirror shows you fair and comely. Then you'll know it. How are we to get it to show us fair and comely, said I. One of you by saving a miserable outcast, and the other by saving a whole people. Then you'll be fair and comely, inside and out, but not until then. You talk in riddles, Master Buffo, said I. Let us go to the king. Madman, said the dwarf, and gave the mirror back to the monkey, who scampered off with it and disappeared. We followed the fool up the great staircase and into a distant wing of the palace and stopped at a door, on which the hunchback knocked. Receiving no answer, he opened the door and let us in. Your Majesty, he cried. They find the king in a terrible state. The king was pacing the floor, grinding and scratching his palms together and muttering angrily to himself. He was an enormous man with a puffy red face, a snub nose, and three chins, and he wheezed as he walked. His hair stood up on end all over his head as if it were trying to fly off. His fat legs went back and forth in a kind of tripping run, and his fat hands rubbed and scratched and slapped each other in a perfect frenzy. "'What? What?' he cried, never halting for an instant. "'What's the matter? What's the matter?' Stop a minute, King Fat Chaps, said the fool. Here's a madman come to cure your itching palms. Ha <laughs> ha! What do you say? What do you say? said the king, dancing along back and forth. It is true, your majesty, said I. You can cure me? What do you say? You're an impostor. They're all impostors. Can you cure me? Why don't you do it then? I understand, said I, that a reward is offered. Well, well, what of it? 
said the king, wheezing and puffing. Half of my dead leaves. What of it? The fact is, said I, we should prefer gold or silver. Impudence, cried the king. Gold? Silver? What do you mean? I never heard of them. He'll take the leaves, never fear, said the dwarf. Oh, yes. Take em, cried the king. Who is the beautiful lady? Take em, dead leaves or nothing. Take em or leave em. It was plain that a fortune of dead leaves was as good as any other, if you only thought it so. And if these people thought it so, as they evidently did, I might as well take it. I am satisfied, your majesty, said I. And if you will hold out your palm, I will work the cure. The perfection cream is rubbed into the itching palm. The king held out his left hand as he passed, and I trotted along beside him, and drawing from my pouch one of my little jars, I applied to the king's palm with my fingers a small portion of my salve, rubbing it in as well as I could, and then I ran around to his other side and did the same for his other hand. It was rather difficult, considering that I had to trot along beside him as he tripped back and forth across the carpet. What? 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 Bless my soul, cried the king, stopping suddenly. It feels better. I bowed and smiled, and Buffo the fool said, Mad old fat chaps, both of you mad. Speak when you're spoken to, said the king. Who asked your opinion? Pooh! Pooh! I haven't any breath left. Not another word out of you, sir. I know when I'm cured. I'm no fool. I'm no fool. Oh, no, not at all, said the fool. Here, you, said the king. Take this young man and his wife and feed him, and let him sleep in the palace. I'll settle with him in the morning, if the itching's gone. I'm no fool. Not my wife, my sister, said I, bowing. What do you say? cried the king. Oh, that's different. He bowed before my sister and kissed her hand very respectfully. Bless my soul, beautiful as a moonbeam. What do you say? Where do you come from, eh? The itching's gone, but I'll wait till morning. I'm no fool. Be off with you, clown, and let him eat and sleep in the palace. What do you say? He shall cure the whole city and I'll make him give up half of all their dead leaves to him. In the morning, in the morning. What do you say? Be off with you. We hastily left him, and as we passed down the hall, we saw him poke his head out of the door and heard him call, Ho! I'm cured! Where's that confounded Chamberlain? Send me the Chamberlain. What do you say? I'm cured. And he banged the door shut again. That night we dined sumptuously and slept in gorgeous apartments in the palace. In the morning, being once more conducted by Buffo to the king, we found him in a transport of happiness. The cure was perfect. He kissed my sister's hand and threw his arms about me and cried, It's yours, half of my dead leaves, and I'll make a prince out of you. Not a word, what do you say? Never woke up once last night. Get to work and cure all my people. Where's that confounded Chamberlain? Get to work. Get to work. Tush, the apothecary, takes the people in hand. The arrangements were soon made. 
I took my stand on the palace steps, and all day long the people filed before me, and into each palm I rubbed a little of myself. It was a work of days, and all business stopped until my task was done. At the end the city was cured. Never were there in this world a people so beside themselves with joy. In the square where I had first met the king's fool, the king caused to be thrown up, with five hundred pairs of willing hands, a vat of hardened mud in blocks, and into this vat his servant poured for me a good full half of all the dead orange leaves in his treasury, and on top of these, from each of those whom I had cured, one half of his store of leaves, so that when all was done the vat was just half full. I was rich, richer than the king himself, and my perfection cream was all gone. I hinted to the king that some kind of covering should be provided for the vat to protect my riches from the weather. What, what, said he, his face growing a trifle purple. There's no rain at this time of year. What do you say, all in good time? I can't do everything in a minute. Now it came to pass, as you may guess, that the king grew daily more smitten with my sister's beauty. Scarcely a day passed on which he did not visit us in the splendid apartments in his palace which he had given us for our own. His favors became more lavish as time went on. They could have only one meaning. You shall be queen, said I to my sister, and she smiled knowingly. We were expecting, one evening, a visit from the king. When the fool entered our apartment, and behind him came, instead of the king, the king's ugly brother. I was startled, for I had forgotten him completely. He knelt beside my sister, and took her hand tenderly in his. Dear lady, he said, I do not blame you that you have neglected your promise. I have stolen here at great risk to lay myself again at your feet. Surely a loyal heart must weigh with you more than rank or riches. Ah, dear lady, say that you will be mine. I confess that there was something about this young man which made me like him better than before, but of course a match such as he proposed was out of the question. My sister shook her head and drew away her hand. I cannot, I cannot, she said. Tell me, he said, do you think well of me? Do you care for me a little? Do you think you can say you love me ever so little? I do, I do, cried my sister to my amazement, hiding her face in her hands. I loved you on the first day I saw you. I can't help it, I do. Ah, then, said the young man, rising, while I on my part remained speechless with astonishment. What's to hinder? You are mine. No, no, said my sister, weeping. It can never be. Is it because I am poor and friendless? My sister never said a word. Is it because you prize rank and wealth more than love? Still, my sister said nothing. The young man hesitated, and stooping to kiss her hand, he said, I have received my answer and with these words he strode mournfully to the door. But she did not look up at him, and with a sigh of deep grief he left us. Paravane has made her choice.
the wrong choice once more said the fool and he too went his way my sister had hardly dried her eyes when there came a knock upon the door behind her and the king entered she did not turn round and the king tripped in silently on his toes putting a finger roguishly to his lips and shaking all over with mirth and coming up behind her he placed his two fat hands over her eyes wagging his eyebrows up and down at me guess who it is he cried wheezing what do you say it's somebody come a wooing never mind who ha 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 guess who it is and tomorrow you'll be queen what do you say poof pa i'm all out of breath it's somebody that wants you to be his queen guess the most beautiful queen in the whole he stopped suddenly the king's fool and his monkey had slipped into the room behind him and were standing before my sister, and the dwarf was holding up his mirror before my sister's face. "'What? What? What?' cried the king in a rage, taking away his hands from my sister's eyes. "'What do you mean? Out of my sight, fool! Away! Be gone!' The dwarf held the mirror higher, shaking with laughter the while and my sister gazed into it. I saw her shudder and turn pale, and then she screamed and buried her face in her hands. The king, staring likewise into the mirror, turned purple and remained as if frozen with horror. He shook himself and gave a choking gasp. "'What's this?' he cried. "'It's the—what a—take it away! She's an old woman! She's a witch!' What a... I'm no fool. It's a trick. I knew it all the time. Take her away. She's an old woman. You can't play tricks on me. I won't have it. I won't stand it. She's a witch. I'm going. I won't stay. It's a trick. I'm no fool. With these words, puffing and wheezing, he trotted on his fat legs out of the room. No marriage yet, said the fool, looking at me queerly and he ran after the king, pulling his monkey along with him. He finds himself rubbing his palms together. That night as I stood before my mirror, undressing and comforting myself with the thought of all the magnificence I had acquired and would acquire with my dead orange leaves, I found myself rubbing the palm of my right hand with the fingers of my left. I was aware of a slight itching in the palm. At breakfast in the morning I noticed that my sister, who was very sober, would now and then scratch the palm of her right hand. But I said nothing, and in the afternoon, without questioning her on the subject of her love for the king's brother, I prepared to visit the king, to try if I could not bring him back to reason. I was ready to leave when my sister broke into my room, crying out frantically, I can't stand it, I can't stand it, the itching in my palms, it won't stop for a moment, I can't sit still, it's growing worse and worse, oh brother, cure it, cure it, or I shall go mad. She walked up and down the room in a frenzy, rubbing her palms together. I tried in vain to pacify her, and at length I left her and betook myself to the king. On my way, the itching of the night before returned and this time I felt it in both my hands. I knew that my sister and myself, 
in common with the king and all his subjects, had been handling the dead leaves freely since I had worked the cure, and I began to be uneasy. When I knocked at the king's door, the voice of the fool said, Come in, and I found the king running with his tripping step up and down the room, rubbing his hands, and beside him trotted the fool and the monkey. Imbecile, cried the king, without stopping for an instant. You shall die the death. A trick, a trick, and half of my dead leaves gone for nothing. A death in boiling oil. What do you say? Don't answer me. My hands, my hands, worse than before. You shall suffer, you shall suffer. A slow death. Why don't you speak? What are you going to do? Ha, 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 laughed the fool. He's been handling the dead leaves again, and so have you all. It'll be my turn soon, my turn soon. Patience, your majesty, said I, rubbing my hands. I will go to work at once and prepare more of my salve. Have no fear. I will cure you instantly. I am off to my work. He cannot find the ingredients for making the salve. Poof, pa, said the king, angrily, and I ran from the room to find the ingredients necessary for my salve. But alas, they were not to be found. I sent everywhere. The city was scoured, but it was no use. I was in despair. Such simples as could be found I gathered together, and of these I made a new remedy, far different from my old, but it was the best I could do. I tried it on myself and felt an almost instant relief. I shouted with joy. I returned to the king, and as I passed an open window in the great hall, I heard the muttering of many voices outside, and I saw a great concourse of people in the palace grounds, all talking angrily, and all rubbing their hands and dancing on their toes in anguish. They began to shout my name, and I knew that if I should fall among them in their present temper I should be lost. The king was trotting up and down as before, and the dwarf and the monkey were running along beside him. What? What? he cried. What now? No tricks. I'm no fool. What's the matter? If I cure you, said I, holding up my box of ointment, I must have the rest of your leaves, and from every one I cure, I must have the rest of his. It is only just. Anything, cried the king. You can't do it. It's another trick. I'll give you all the dead leaves in the city to anyone who can save me and my people. It's a trick. You can't do it. What are you waiting for? Try it. Oh, these hands. It's no use. Hurry up. I seized his hand, and running beside him, I rubbed into his palm a little of my new ointment, and running around to his other side, I did the same for his other hand. See the madman, cried the fool, clapping his hands in glee. By the beard of my uncle, cried the king, I feel better. It's going. It's gone. It's all over. I'm cured. Oh, wonderful young man, come to my arms. What do you say? I knew you could do it all the time. I'm cured. He grasped my arm and pulled me from the room and down the stairway to the front door. A great throng filled the grounds from the door to the gate, and commanding silence the king announced in a loud voice that I was ready with my cure, and that whoever wished to be cured should give up the remainder of his dead leaves. There was a moment's hesitation, but the anguish of their affliction was too great. 
the people whispered together, doubtless remarking that they would soon get back their leaves in trade, and at any rate they began to file before me, and my healing work commenced, but not before I had applied myself, in sight of all, to my sister's palms, and given her immediate relief. All that day and the next, and for several days, the work continued, and in each case the itching vanished at once. The city was cured again, and my vat in the public square was filled to the brim with all the dead orange leaves that the people owned. The glory of my future was beyond calculation. My sister, I resolved, should yet be queen, and I planned for myself such offices of the state as should give me power even greater than the king's. When I awoke in my bed on the following morning, I found that I was rubbing my hands. I dressed hurriedly, and my sister came to me in tears. She was rubbing her hands. We hurried to the king. He was running up and down, rubbing his hands. We fled from him and ran out upon the palace steps, not knowing where next to go. And as we stood there hesitating, the king's brother appeared before us and spoke with excitement. Beloved, he cried, we love each other. What more is needed? Quick, it's not yet too late. Say that you love me. Let me hear it again. Ah, yes, I do, said my sister, and he threw his arms about her and clasped her to his breast. Come, I will save you, he cried. There is time if we hurry. Will you come with me now? My sister drew back a little, still struggling within herself, and while she hesitated, a commotion arose at the gate, and the young man cried out in a voice full of despair, It is too late, too late. Tush and his sister are seized by the angry crowd. At the gate a throng of people were pressing in with angry shouts. They made toward us dancing and rubbing their hands. They surrounded us. They crowded upon us to suffocation. The young man and myself tried in vain to shield my sister. Angry hands were laid upon her and upon myself, and we were hustled away toward the gate. "'Give us back our leaves! Kill them both! To the square!' shouted the mob. And thrusting the king's brother aside, they pulled and pushed us to the public square, and halted us beneath the vat which contained all my wealth. A sudden outcry followed by silence drew my attention upward. There above us, on the rim of the vat, stood the king's fool. He held a lighted torch aloft in his hand. "'Madmen!' he cried. I am ready to cure you, all alone. Speak, shall I destroy the leaves? No, no, shouted the crowd. Stop him, stop him. If you fire the leaves, we will kill these two, shouted one of our captors. Oh, said my sister at my side, pale with terror. What shall we do? Stop him. If the genie would only come and help us. I wish the genie were here to help us. The time has come, cried the fool. I must save you. Why will you all be mad? I must save you from your madness. In with the torch. He faced about toward the center of the vat and swung his torch as if about to toss it in. But at that instant a great wind swept across the square with a roar, such a blast as I have never in my life known before, 
and the king's fool tottered in it for a moment, and his torch went out, and then clutching at the air he was blown headlong to the ground in a heap. The whirlwind! The whirlwind! shouted the crowd in terror. Fly! Fly for your lives! Far across the housetops appeared a yellow cloud, and a saffron gloom overspread the city. From the cloud to the ground revolved a yellow funnel as of dust-laden wind, and it was coming toward us with the speed of lightning. The crowd dispersed madly, trampling one another, shrieking and cursing, and in a twinkling they were gone. I seized my sister and dragged her to the street corner, where I opened one half of a cellar door and plunged down with her, closing the door over us, but peeping out through a crack. We were just in time. THE GENIE AND THE WHIRLWIND The whirling funnel of wind and dust swept over the square, and in the forefront of it, at great height, flew the genie, his great mouth open and darts of fire flickering around his face. The square was empty, save for the crumpled body of the king's fool, lying motionless beside the vat of dead leaves, and I gazed at him where he lay, I saw moving toward him across the bare pavement the humped figure of his little monkey. The genie, far above, kept just ahead of the whirlwind. The yellow funnel whirled after him directly across the vat and covered it and passed, and as it passed, all the dead leaves surged up into a furious gale so that it was darkened with them, and the next moment the whirlwind was gone and the square lay quiet in the sunshine. Come, Paravane, said I, and pulled my sister forth across the square. We came to the base of the vat, and on the ground beside it, left there untouched by the storm, lay the king's fool on his side, graver than he had ever been in his life, and huddled against his breast sat his monkey, shivering, and looking up at us with eyes that seemed to reproach us. We hurried toward the city gate. Many houses were in ruins, and the streets were strewn with rubbish. People were running busily about, gazing intently at the ground, and now and then one would stoop and pick up something. I saw what it was they were doing. They were searching for dead leaves, scattered by the whirlwind. I can't go, said my sister, weeping. I must see him first. Oh, my love, my love. Too late now, I cried. Too late, too late. I pulled her onward, knowing that death awaited us in that city and we came to the plot of grass where we had seen the sacred tree. It was gone, and in the place where it had been was only a gaping hole. The whirlwind had passed that way. On the ground beside the hole lay the panther, its head on its paws. It watched us with sleepy eyes as we fled by. In a moment we had reached the city gate and passed out. The guardian was standing there, his face clouded with a frown and his scimitar raised. Why do you flee? said he. From the wrath of the people, I cried. Let us pass. You cannot pass, said he. His scimitar glittered in the sun. But we repent, we repent, cried my sister. Too late, too late, said the guardian. See. He pointed upward and afar off in the sky appeared a black speck speeding toward us. The genie, I cried, and I had no sooner said it 
then the earth trembled, and before us on the ground towered the genie, breathing fire. Save us from him, I cried, turning to the guardian, but he was gone. We were alone with the genie. Pulling off the genie's ring. Off with the ring, that will send him away. I cried to my sister, and she tugged at the ring on her forefinger to pull it off, but it came unwillingly, and as she pulled, her finger lengthened. She tugged harder, and as the ring came, her finger stretched out longer and longer, and when the ring was off and dropped on the ground, the first finger of her right hand was more than a foot long, a black stiff rod hooked at the end like a poker. The genie stooped and gathered me under his right arm, and my sister under his left, and giving a stamp upon the ground which shook the earth, he mounted into the air. Far out over the great sea, as the sun was setting, the genie drew downward toward an island, and on a bluff of this island, overlooking a cove in which fishing boats lay moored, he alighted and set us on our feet. Over my sister's head and back he passed his hand, speaking strange words in his throat. She shriveled before my eyes. Her face became old and wrinkled, and her body bent, and before I could speak she was the hideous creature I had seen in the fool's glass, with a forefinger like the poker of a rag-picker. Paravane, I cried but the genie turned her away toward a village which showed itself at the back of the cove, and sent her off in that direction, and when she had gone, he picked me up in his mighty hands, and carrying me to the further edge of the bluff where it looked down on the rolling surf, he swung me back and forth three or four times, and tossed me out to sea. I sank into the depths, I rose to the surface, and as my head came up, I looked for the genie. Far up in the evening sky flew what seemed a tiny black arrow. I cried aloud, and instead of a shriek, there came from my throat a bark. It was the bark of a seal. End of section 9 Recording by Laurie Arsenault